Hey, Salt City. My name is Jordan Adams. I'm the college pastor here. And one of the things that I was thankful for genuinely was the things in Minnesota, like hills and trees and lakes. And it got me thinking about a, a trip that just me and I took about a month ago to Duluth. Um, yeah, yeah, wow, that got a woo. I didn't see that coming. Uh, Duluth, woo, yeah. Um, it was amazing. It was my first time that, that I had ever been there. And I actually brought some, some photos that we took um, that, I, that I just wanted to, to show you. Are they up there? Can you see them? Yeah? Is that, yeah? I can, okay, Brian, thanks. Yep, yeah, got them. Um, yeah, and I like, I mean, these photos aren't like that relevant to anything. I just wanted to remind you all of fall. You ever catch yourself this time of year starting to talk about fall and summer like it's a dead pet? Like, remember when we used to do that in summer? Remember, remember fall? That was great. Okay, so just like that's what trees and leaves looks like. Um, but we, we went exploring around Duluth, and we walked down to the base of this waterfall, and I brought my hammock with me. Well, this was actually north of Duluth. We got to Duluth, and we just kept going, uh, Tetaguchi State Park. And uh, we walked down to the base of a waterfall, and I took my hammock with me, and we set up the hammock at the base of a waterfall and just chilled there and, like, looked at creation. And I love vacations where, like, the whole point is to get outside and go, whoa, this is awesome. And, and that's what we did. And, and we found this, this other trail, like, that went um, kind of winded along the bluff, like, right over the lake. And I found this, this rock. I think it's the third picture in there, this, this rock that I swear God, like, made for me. And it was this, this overhang over the bluff. And I think in the photo, it looks like I'm like posing for this picture, but I'm, I'm not. Like, I, I just am like doing one of those, like looking over, but I'm terrified. Um, but I ended up just laying, like it was this rock that kind of curved up over the edge. And I ended up just like laying on it and putting my chin on the edge of the rock. And then like hanging with my arms down over the edge. And just for like 15 minutes, just going, this is nuts. This is amazing, right? And just kind of looking out at, creation. And that's one way that you can see beauty. But the other thing that I did while I was there, I don't know if you guys have ever done this. This one's not as, as common, but I just grabbed a leaf. And have you ever just looked at a leaf? They're, they're amazing. Like you take it and you look at it and you look at like how the, the stems like kind of go into every little part of the leaf and how every leaf is different and how like the colors kind of change as it goes up through the leaf. And so that's another way that you can see beauty, is you can pay attention to, to the details, right? And, and I think our story today from Jesus in Mark 5 is, is kind of like that, okay? So I'll explain that in a second, but here's, here's the basic overview of the story. We're going to read part of it, but not all of it. But here's the overview of the story, is that Jesus is going to have these powerful interactions with, with mainly a couple people. So the first one is this guy named Jairus. And he's, he's a, a, a temple kind of synagogue ruler, a powerful guy, but he's in a desperate situation, and his, his daughter is dying. And so he comes to Jesus, and he, and he asks him to heal his daughter, and so they start heading to his house where he's going to kind of lay hands on his daughter and heal her, but along the way, they meet this woman that's been sick uh, for 12 years, and Jesus has compassion on this woman, and he heals her. And then he eventually ends up going to Jairus' daughter, who actually has died along the way, and we're going to see a resurrection. We're going to see Jesus tell that little girl to wake up, and she's going to stand up, and she's going to 
look into his eyes and come back to life. So that is like the macro view. That's the, the laying on the rock and kind of looking at the lakes and the trees and the big picture. And, and that's kind of the obvious thing, right? Like Jesus can raise people from the dead. Like, okay, sermon done. Like he's powerful, okay? Like you, that's obvious. You can see that. And I, and I want to see that. I want to be amazed by that. But I also want to notice the details because I think if we see some of the, the little interactions that are going on in this story, it's going to be like kind of like investigating that leaf in our hands and we're going to see beauty come out in kind of the micro level too. And that's basically what I want to do this morning is I, I don't have like a ton of like take home points for you. Yeah, we're going to talk about your life, but I don't have these three little kind of neat like uh, application points. I just want to take that leaf. I want to kind of spin it around our hands, in our hands, and I want to see beauty in the details of who Jesus is. Okay, so let's let's dig into this story, and this is this is where I want to go. I want to show you the characteristics of Jesus this morning. So first, I want to show you the compassion of Jesus, then the mystery of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus, and the power of Jesus. The compassion, the mystery, the goodness, and the power of Jesus. All right, so let's, let's pick it up. We're in Mark 5. I'm going to start in verse 21, and I'm going to read like a decent chunk of this story, verse 34, through, through verse 34. All right, Mark 5, 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. So Jesus is like, okay, I'm going I'm to heal your daughter. I'm going to go. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. So essentially they hear word that they're about to see something cool. They're going to hear a miracle. So there's this massive crowd that's kind of coming along with them. And they're pushing up against Jesus. Verse 25. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she, that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. And she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. So she sneaks up behind him in this crowd and she just grabs a little piece of his robe thinking, if I can just touch him, then I'm going to be healed. Verse 28, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, they're just like, dude, are you nuts? You, you see the crowd pressing in around you, and you say, Who touched me? Like, everyone is touching you, Jesus. Verse 32, and he looked around to see who had done it. He just ignores him. He's like, you guys don't get it. I'm going to keep going. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, did you catch that? Daughter, familial terms. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Okay. Three things I want you to kind of quickly notice the details in this text. One, I want you to notice who she is. Then I want you to notice who Jesus is with when she meets up with them. And then what she expected to get out of this interaction with Jesus versus what she actually got. Okay, so 
Who is this woman? And, and what do we kind of learn about her? Okay, we know that she's been bleeding for 12 years. She's had this disease, this sickness, and she's done everything that she can to get rid of it. She's, she's seen doctors over and over again, and the only thing that's happened is, is that she's gone bankrupt and gotten worse. But the other thing that we know about this woman is that she's unclean. She's a social and religious outcast. Okay, the, the long story short of this clean, unclean thing is that this, this concept of being clean in the eyes of God dominated the religious and social life of Israel. So essentially the Israelites carried around this, this distinction of being clean as a badge of honor. And what they had to do in order to have that distinction was to kind of avoid eating certain foods, being in certain situations, and being around certain diseased people. And this woman is one of those people that all the other Israelites were avoiding because she was unclean. So if a clean Israelite were to touch this woman or even to touch something that this woman had touched, then that Israelite would become unclean. And so you know what's been happening to this woman for 12 years? Is that her friends, her family, her co-workers have been avoiding her. She's likely had no physical contact with another human being for 12 years. And if she has, that human has had to then leave to kind of wash themselves because they encountered her. She's an outcast. And Jesus is in this crowd of adoring fans. They love him. They're chasing after him. They're trying to get close to him. And this is like the religious and political elite that are kind of chasing Jesus. And who does he talk to? This woman. Like, don't miss the significance of that. Jesus turns away from a rich, powerful, religious man to talk to a weak, poor woman. Jesus flips the societal norms of power on its head. He establishes a new norm that nobody else really likes. And guys, right now, culturally... We're seeing this just gross landslide of powerful men in society preying on weak women. You see it in politics, you see it in Hollywood, and it's not just limited to that. That's where the revelations are coming out. And as Christians, that should make us angry. We should speak up for and defend and support the powerless and abused, because that's what Jesus does. And if you've had one of those terrible experiences, if you are like that, that me too story, I want you to see that Jesus is the powerful man who doesn't use his power against you, but humbles himself to serve and love you. That's what Jesus is like. And, and maybe that hasn't been your experience, but you know what it's like to be overlooked in a crowd. You know what it's like to be an outcast because of your, your personality, your temperament, your background, your race. And I want you to see that Jesus, and by default, his church, should be a place where you're seen for who you are. 
And I, and I want us to be a people like that, and I'm challenged, and I'm convicted by this about how I need to change. And, and I want us to be the, like the type of church that reflects the beauty of Jesus in this area. I, I talked to a, a student this week who, through his life, has been stereotyped and kind of rejected because of the color of his skin and misunderstood. There's people like that in our church and do we see them, do we love them like Jesus? Are we reversing the power structures of society as a body? What would that look like for us to do that corporately? What would that look like for you and me to do that individually? All right, so we gotta, we gotta keep going. Jesus sees this, this outcast and he notices her, he loves her. Now notice how Jesus wants way more from her than she originally wants to give him. He's got a different plan for this interaction than she does. Okay, so look at, look at what her game plan is. Like, like her idea of this interaction is that she's gonna get in, she's gonna get healed, and she's gonna get out. Like this is a healing hit and run, guys. But Jesus, he wants something more than that, so he calls her out. He stops the entire procession to, I think, yell out, like call out over the crowd, who just touched me? And, and the disciples are laughing at him. The crowd's like, dude, you're losing it. Like, we're all touching you. What are you talking about? But this woman knows what he's talking about. And I can see the crowd kind of parting, maybe some of them recognizing her as an unclean woman. The crowd kind of parts as she walks up to him and she falls on her face before him and she tells him the whole story. Look, it was me. I wanted to be healed, and so I snuck up and touched you, and that's where your power went out from. And then look at his response to this woman, verse 34. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Jesus knows that she needs more than a touch-and-run healing. She needs to become a daughter of God. And the woman came for physical healing, and what she got was salvation. Jairus came for some intense cold medicine, and you know what he's going to get? A resurrection. And in both cases, what it took was more faith out of them than they originally thought that they can give. See, a real encounter with Jesus is almost never what you would expect. He will ask more he will ask you for more than you ever wanted to give and he'll give you more than you ever would have thought to ask for. That's what it's like to meet Jesus. Jesus will not stop at surface level interactions with you. He's too good for that. He's too compassionate for that. He wants all of you. He, he wants all of your trust, all of your life. And, and Jesus will ask you for more of your life than you really want to give him. And guys, sometimes I think we're too busy asking him for the stuff that we want to hear what he wants from us, what he's trying to draw out of us. And I just want to ask you this, like, in what areas of your life are you making demands of Jesus without letting him make demands of you? Where does Jesus want to have more of you? So I want to give you a second to think about that. Like, really? Really? What area of your life does Jesus want more of?
here's what I want you to see, is those things that are hard to let go of, when he demands more from you, it's out of compassion. He wants more from you because he wants to give you more of himself. He wants you to be dependent on him, which is the best life that you could possibly live. All right, that's the compassion of Jesus. Now I want to show you the, the mystery of Jesus, the mystery of Jesus. And we're going to look at this interaction with Jairus. And I want you particularly to notice the timing of this interaction that Jesus has with him. So Jairus is this, this upstanding, he's this powerful man, but he's desperate because he's encountering one of the worst things a human being ever could, his kids dying. And, and even after Jesus says that, that he'll come to help, he'll come, come to heal him, can you imagine how agonizing that walk would be? Like they're literally walking to his dying child and even though he knows that Jesus is coming to heal her, he doesn't know how long she has left. And so I don't know if he's running, like I don't know how far this is, but I know he's gotta be, he's gotta be stressed, he's gotta be anxious worrying about his daughter. And as they're heading on the way to save his daughter, Jesus stops. Like his daughter is on the brink of death and Jesus wants to have this little debate with the crowd about who touched him. Guys, this is, this is an ambulance driver driving to the emergency room and stopping to buy people donuts and coffee. This, like, Jesus does not look like the good physician here. This is like divine medical malpractice. Like, who, who does this? Like, I actually relate to the disciples in this. They're like, they get the urgency of the situation. Dude, who cares who touched you? Everybody's touching you. Like, let's go. And in the middle of this like weird debate that Jesus is having, everything that Jairus has feared happens. The messengers run up to him and they say, your daughter's dead. And, and if, you've, like, if you've ever experienced something like that, you know what it's like in that moment. You can't process anything. It's like this animal instinct. You can't even understand what's just happening to you. And look at what Jesus' response is while Jairus is having this moment, verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Notice that Jesus doesn't explain what's about to happen. He doesn't say, hey, everything's gonna be fine, man. Like, I'm gonna raise her from the dead. It's gonna be great. We're gonna be throwing a party in about 15 minutes. He doesn't explain any of that. He goes, look at me. Do you trust me? And a lot of you are, are in a place or have been in a place where you feel like you're yelling at him, like, Jesus, let's go. Like, what are you waiting for? Maybe for you that's sin, like this, this sin that's just kind of repeatedly been in your life and you've asked him to remove it from you and you keep going back to it again and you feel discouraged and like you're never gonna get out and like he's not hearing you. Maybe for you that's physical suffering. Maybe you're losing someone like Jairus was and you are wondering where in the world is God? Like what, like how could, how could this be what's good for me? And you're calling out to him. Maybe for you, it's just like, it's just like distance. Like you just feel like you're, you're yelling to him and there's just this ceiling and he can't hear a word you're saying and you feel like you're not growing. You, when you pray, it feels dead. You feel distant from him and you've wondered what's happened to him and you're saying, God, let's go. God refuses to be rushed. 
He refuses to be rushed because he's too good for that. He hasn't promised you an answer, but he has promised you himself. And maybe that's exactly what you need, is to get put in a place where you're so dependent that all you want is him. And sometimes getting him means taking you to the very edge of what you can stand, of what you can handle. Because almost all of us would say that when we rely on God, and that, that we rely on God and then we trust him, but when we're put to the test, we find out that we don't really trust him as much as we think. So he will bring you to points in your life where you don't understand, where you're out of your depth, and, and he'll look at you and, he, and he'll say, do you trust me? Not do you trust that I can fix this immediately. Do you trust me? So before Jessamy and I moved up here to help start this church, we were living in Ames, loving life. And in one semester, we got asked to go to four different places in this network. It was, it was, a, it was a little bit of a chaotic semester. And we got thrown into this time where we didn't know what in the world was going on. Like, are these people trying to kick us out of here? Like, do they not like us anymore? Like, why do they keep asking us to leave? We just want to stay. We thought this was fine. What's happening? And, and it really, like, it shook us. Um, like, I remember coming home and laying, looking at my ceiling, just feeling fear and insecurity, and something that should have been these cool opportunities was actually just discouraging. And we processed through all of those opportunities and we thought we were willing to go and we actually weren't. And so we, we said no to all of them. And then we bought our house. Like, all right, this is us laying down roots. Like, this is where we're gonna be for the rest of your life. And Jesus tends to mess that stuff up when you try and pull that on him. And so while we were still unpacking boxes, I get a call from Drew. And I like immediately knew that this was different and I started to have those uh-oh moments because I knew we were gonna go. And that last semester was brutal for us. We were terrified. We had no idea what this was gonna look like. We were leaving everything that we knew, all the people that we loved. And now I look at that and just go, what in the world were we freaked out about? <laughs> like what? Why were we so afraid? Because, look, God wanted to challenge me in that area to give us this, which I never could have known everything that he wanted to give us until we finally just said, like, look, let's, let's jump in, let's go. But you know what it took for us to get there is that time of insecurity, that time of doubt, that time of not knowing what was gonna happen. And he never really answered our questions. But now I look back at that time and go, you know what, that's exactly what we needed because we really didn't trust him. We like gave lip service about how we would go anywhere, do anything for him. And that actually wasn't true. It just wasn't. And so what did he do? He threw us in the fire so we could figure out how to trust him. He brought us to the edge of our rope so that we could learn dependence. That's what Jesus does. So when Jesus puts you in situations to show you how dependent you are, what does it look like to respond in faith instead of fear? What does it look like to respond in faith instead of fear? Well, I want to give you a little, a little definition of faith, Okay. Faith is stubbornly refusing to forget God's desire and ability to be good to you. 
Faith is stubbornly refusing to forget God's desire and ability to be good to you. So let me break that down a little bit. There's there's two things that we need to believe about God in order to have real faith in him. One, that he's good, and two, that he's powerful. So the first, that he's good. That he wants what's best for you. Because we've just talked about Jesus' compassion towards us. And one of the most compassionate things that he's ever done for us is he's done this amazing thing where he's hidden us with Christ in God, as Colossians says. That we've become unified with Christ or, or that we've been put in Christ. And here's what that means to be in Christ. Is that God treats you the way that he treats his son. God treats you the way that he treats Jesus. And the only thing that God is towards his son is good, which means the only thing that God is towards you is good. Like in suffering, in sin, in pain, in confusion, in mystery, God is relentlessly, unendingly, stubbornly good to you. He can't be anything good but good to you. It's, it's a cosmic impossibility for God to be anything but good to you. It is more likely that I will fly out of this room on a unicorn after this service is over than for Jesus to not be good to you. It's ridiculous. So he's good. But it actually isn't enough for him to just be good. He's got to be powerful. He's actually got to back up that goodness towards you. He's got to be powerful enough to actually make good happen for you. When I was a, a, a kid, I, one of my favorite things was going to the pool. So I, I remember, like my life like was Sandlot, guys. Like I played baseball in the summer and then when I, I went to the pool when I couldn't play baseball. And I remember going to the pool with my dad. And when I was like a little kid, we did that thing that like most little kids do with their dad at the pool is when you can't swim yet, right? You stand on the edge and, and your dad's in the pool and he's going, jump. And here's the thing, I couldn't swim yet. So this is literally a life or death situation for me. And I'm the most accident prone human being you will ever meet. So if anybody could drown in a pool, it's me. And, and so he's standing there going, jump. And what do I need to know in order to jump? I need to know that he's good, that he loves me, and that he's strong enough to catch me, right? And for me to stand on the edge and to run away in fear would actually be dishonoring to my dad. And so this is what you do when you trust your dad. You get to the edge and you know that you can't swim, but you jump into the pool anyway because you know that he's gonna catch you. You rely on his goodness, and on his power towards you. And I want you to see that what Christianity is, is God constantly bringing you to the edge and saying, jump. Christianity isn't learning how to swim on your own, how to become self-dependent so that you don't need him anymore. You're constantly gonna be dependent on him. It's learning how to repeatedly jump into his arms, trusting that he can hold you. That's what faith instead of fear looks like. But in order to do that, you gotta know that he's both good and powerful. So just real quick, let's see in this story where God is good and where he's powerful. So let's look back at the woman. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear 
and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Let me ask you, why is she afraid? Why is she afraid? The answer is because she's unclean. She's unclean. The contaminated cannot be in the presence of the clean. And you realize that that's our situation before God, right? Our lives are contaminated by sin. And because of that, we're quarantined from him. The unclean can't come into the presence of clean. Sin is a disease that robs you of everything that's good and robs you of the presence of God. But look at what happens to this woman when she just comes to him in all of her uncleanness, all of her brokenness. Jesus heals her. The effects of sin are reversed. Instead of her sin separating her from him, his goodness overwhelms her sin. But I think our tendency when we sin is to kind of run from him, to kind of quarantine ourselves We respond in fear that he's going to judge us and refuse us instead of faith and coming to him and clinging to his robes. And so we try and get healthy and then kind of come back to him. But if, if, if you come to him clean, if you try and get away and kind of clean up, he's got nothing for you. But in desperation, if you bring your self-righteousness, your pride, your impurity, your lack of self-control, if you bring your past, your regrets, your shame to him, he will heal you. His goodness will overwhelm your brokenness. That's his goodness. What about his power? Well, how does the story finish out? They go to the house of Jairus. And they walk in, and it's like a funeral. People are crying and wailing. And he goes in, and he goes, guys, what are you crying about? Like, she's just sleeping. Can you imagine walking into a funeral and taking the mic and saying that? It's weird. And they laugh at him. But he kicks them out, and he goes in with just his disciples and this little girl's family. And he grabs this little girl's hand who's just died. And he says, little girl, wake up. And you know what? She does. She wakes up to the loving eyes of her creator. Guys, remember the wind and the waves? That was a pretty powerful demonstration of who God is. But what about this? Like, what's the ultimate fear of every human being? The disease that's haunted us. Like, that's stolen friends and family from us. The great fear of humanity is death. And Jesus looks the great enemy of the human race in the face, and without breaking a sweat, he says, little girl, get up, and she does. And life floods over this little girl, and she wakes up from what was just actually a little sleep. And what's crazy about this is this is just a precursor to an even greater reality, something that's going to happen on Easter Sunday is that Jesus is going to die, he's going to be buried in a grave, and he's going to get back up to life. Like, the God that we worship is not dead. He's come to life because death can't hold him. But even that resurrection, if you can believe it or not, is just a precursor to another resurrection. There's an even greater resurrection that's coming and it's yours and mine where one day Jesus is going to take you by the hand and he's going to say wake up 
And you're going to be looking in the eyes of your Savior, and you're going to awake into eternity. And on that day, you're going to have a new and physical and eternal body just like Jesus has. And not only that, but he'll whisper life into all of creation. Jesus will blow the dust of death off of this place. And in the blink of an eye, this world is going to be transformed. And you will see the place for which you were made the place that you crave but can't ever find here. And out of the ashes of death and decay will rise a new world and death will be a distant memory and joy will be your constant reality. That's what's coming for you. Now let me ask you, can you trust him? Can he handle what you're going through? Let the promise of hope in the future the evidence of his power and love in the past inform your trust of him now. Let me pray. Jesus, the reality is we can trust you. But we forget that. We forget about your goodness, about your power. I forgot about your goodness and your power this week. And so thanks for being patient with us. Thanks for being merciful to a bunch of outcasts like us, like you were to that woman. Thanks for giving us a hope for the future that we're going to get to be with you someday. That not only are you not dead, but you're going to raise us to a new life with you. And would that like incredible reality inform the way that we live now? Would we just jump over and over again into your arms? And so would you reveal to us right now what you're calling us to? Like in this moment, by your spirit, would you demonstrate for people the, the, the ways that you're calling them out into something different for their lives? And would you just let us jump? Would we trust you? And thanks, Jesus, that you're strong enough to catch us. Yeah, we love you. Amen.